0: Okay, uh, should, we, uh, should we get started? Uh, thank you all for coming. A uh, June, wet, wet June uh, night, uh, Thursday night. Diane and I were contemplating what, how many people would battle the elements to get here. Um, this uh, public lecture is going to be given by uh, Diane Coyle. I'm not going to uh, do a massive, uh, embarrassing biography. Uh, other than to say that uh, Diane currently uh, runs the consultancy Enlightenment Economics. Uh, she seems to uh, manage to do that as well as doing a vast number of other uh, activities. Uh, Vice Chair of the BBC Trust, uh, member of the Migration Advisory Committee, was a member of the Brown Review of Higher Education Funding, for which some of us should be immensely thankful, uh, was on the Competition Commission for eight years, visiting professor at University of Manchester, Uh, And aside from all of these activities, uh, also manages uh, to uh, get round to writing a number of high-profile books. Uh, The one, I think, which forms the foundation of today's is The Economics of Enough, which was published in March 2011. Uh, But she also had The Soulful Science in 2007. And actually one of the first books I ever read that got me thinking about urban economics, which was The Weightless World uh, in 1996. So, uh, Dan, the floor is yours. Dan's going to talk for about 30, 40 minutes, and then we'll open the floor up for questions.
1: Thank you very much, Henry. Uh, and uh, and uh, thanks once again to all of you for coming along this evening and uh, engaging in this discussion, which I think is really important. And as I've been talking about this idea of enough for sustainability broadly has obviously struck a chord with lots of people for I guess quite obvious reasons at the moment. Uh, I've been working since the mid-1990s on the economics of the new technologies, information and communications technologies, a general purpose technology that's bringing about significant structural change in the economy and whenever you talk about structural change in the economy you're really talking about sustainability because structural change is disruptive and it means people changing their working patterns, changing their consumption habits, changing perhaps the places they live, and in particular, changing institutions and society in response to the technological changes. And those happen much more slowly, and there are feedbacks as well, because how quickly and effectively institutions respond to the underlying technological or structural forces in turn, affects the economy and and how well that does, and there's a feedback loop there. So I'm talking about a much broader concept of sustainability than the way we normally think about it, which is in the context of the natural environment, obviously. And the definition I like is Robert Solow's, and he said, sustainability is whatever it takes to achieve for the next generation a standard of living at least as good as our own, and for them to look after the next generation in a similar way. So it's that whatever it takes, whatever it takes. And I started writing a book that was a bit about the environment, but also about the financial and social aspects. And that got overtaken by events with the financial crisis. And um, as it turned out, the unsustainable was not sustained in that particular context. It all fell over, as we know. These dimensions, these separate dimensions, are all linked. And... I'm an economist. We make a big deal in economics about the idea of general equilibrium and everything being connected and everything having a consequence. But actually, we're very bad at systems thinking. Have been in the past generation or so, very bad at systems thinking and about how the social and the environmental link into the into the economic. Um, But in the banking crisis. It turned out that that definition of unsustainability was literally true. It it stopped being sustained and we now don't have a a functioning banking system that collects people's savings and pulls them, puts them into productive investments and delivers a return to the savers. That just isn't happening. So today I thought um, I'd start with those technological and structural questions that I have been working on since the mid-1990s. Then turn to why that's made this idea of trust much more important, and why trust is important for sustainability. And relate that in honor of this being a talk in the Department of Geography and Environment about two uh, geographical and urban questions. And then finally, discuss policy, or perhaps not. We'll get to that. I thought I'd um, introduce all this by, with a few snapshots from my recent life. This is the Diamond Jubilee weekend. It's our street party, and it's a curtain raiser to one of my themes tonight. We have about fifty houses in the street, three quarters of them turned out for the party, and people on the odd numbers, in the odd numbers brought the savouries, and the people in the even numbers brought the desserts and the cakes, and the local fire service turned up to let the kids clamber over the fire engine. And the point I want to make about this is that nobody official organised it. The government's very happy to see street parties, but there was not a street party policy. And there hadn't been a working group to create street parties and tell people what to do about it. This was two blokes in the street who decided to organise it. And everybody fell in behind them, and it worked in this incredibly harmonious and, and pleasant way. The point I want to make with this is that for a generation now in talking about policy, we've had a mental map of a policy territory divided between... The government that does policies and the market and the government's job is to do what the market can't do and there's a boundary over which they fight and it's been a kind of battle of the Somme you know you privatise a bit here and you take a bit back there and this is a false metaphor, I don't quite know what the right metaphor is, I was thinking about it earlier today and thought it might be like a recipe where you need the flour and the eggs and you also need some sugar and some milk and some, and some oil and maybe some cherries to go in it whatever, and there are different mixes of ingredients, but you need all of those things to end up with a cake. I don't know if that's the right one, but it's better than the the map we've had about, the the idea we've had about a map dividing into two separate territories, and mutually exclusive territories at that. So that's the first theme, and I'll come back to those points. My second snapshot from Diamond Jubilee Weekend is the concert, and I was lucky enough to have a ticket. It was a great night out, if you like Cliff Richard and Elton John. (laughs) We were a few rows down from the Royal Box, and you could turn back and see the Archbishop of Canterbury dancing along. It was, uh, it was very entertaining. There were more than half a million people in the Mall. It ended with a fantastic fire- fireworks display at 10.30. And at 10.45, everybody thought, been a long day, head straight back to the Tube. And that more than half a million people piled onto the Tube in a completely harmonious way. Everybody was very cheerful, singing little snippets of the songs and got home as normal. It took me 45 minutes to get home despite the crowds. And so my other theme is actually about what are the characteristics of these economic, these urban environments that make it possible for that kind of harmonious cooperation between total strangers to take place, and, and about the fine line between, between that and, and not having that kind of trust and not having that kind of cooperation. So, that's the anecdotes. Um, Let me go back to the beginning, which is the technology story. When we talk about this generation of technologies, ICTs, we call them, the first thing that comes to mind, I think, is the gadgets, the iPhones, the tablet computers that so many of us have now. It's been an extraordinary set of technologies. It's been, as far as we can tell from the data, the fastest diffusion ever within countries and around the world of a set of new technologies and uh, the linked phenomenon of the fastest declines in price ever of information processing and communication. And it's very much not just gadgets. This is not a gadget. Um, One of the key things about the ICTs is actually the communications. That is what has driven the logistics and the globalization most of the 2000s, about a quarter of the increase in uh, structural growth in the United States economy was due to Walmart and specifically due to Walmart improving its logistics and taking advantage of the possibility of sending designs quickly to China and getting the goods quickly back. A lot of people talk about China as a cheap manufacturing phenomenon, and I think the focus on cost is misleading because it's actually a logistics phenomenon. We did a study in my consultancy looking at uh, clothing manufacture, and at the time we did it, labour costs in China to put together shirts uh, or skirts was, were indeed extremely low. But the comparative advantage that the manufacturers there had was in um, taking a design from a company like the parent company of Zara uh, over these new technologies, having their own network of suppliers around Southeast Asia, not just in China, to deliver um, the facings and the buttons and the threads that they needed, assembling that quickly, packaging it, putting the price tags on, sending it back to all the different stores around Europe and the United States, ready to put straight on the shelves with the price labels on in a space of six weeks. So the comparative advantage wasn't cheap labor. It was actually using the communications technologies and the shipping technologies do the logistics bit of it and the same story is true about Apple and its iPhones and uh, using Foxconn to do the manufacture because the focus there has also been on Apple makes massive profits if only they would accept a slightly pr- low profit margin they could bring all those jobs back to the United States but the labor cost element of the iPhone isn't high enough to make a big difference to the calculation. And the reason they go to Foxconn is because if Steve Jobs or Johnny Ive decided they wanted a slightly different kind of curvature on the back of of the iPhone, they could send that quickly to Foxconn and in a very short space of time get that manufactured at scale and shipped back to their major markets in the United States. So in a way, the most important bit, at least in the early stages of all of this uh, structural economic revolution, were about communications technology and changing the logistics of the economy and how that fed in, into, the, into the, the manufacturing chain and the retailing chain. The second bit was about information processing rather than communication. And what information processing cheaply allowed was the biotech revolution. You couldn't sequence the human genome without cheap computer power and microprocessors. And nanotech and smart materials. And, and in case you've been wondering, these, this is graphene, these are blobs of graphene which is two nanometers thick. In other words, not very thick at all. And so there's a whole subsequent um, wave of, of innovations, technological innovations, built on information processing. And these are in their relatively early stages, and we still have yet to see the commercialization and application of a lot of these bits of the technology. And then thirdly, even the gadgets themselves have been quite revolutionary in some contexts we think of them as a better phone or a better way of watching telly in bed or on the tube if you've got your tablet. Um, but in a country like Kenya where I've done a lot of research, phones have been um, absolutely revolutionary in the economy. It, it, in the space of four years, took Kenya from no communications to having the same level of communications that we had in the 1970s. And then very quickly after that as well provided um, a layer of Um, economic services that didn't exist before, financial services and MPAs being the best known example, but also health services and agricultural services sitting on top of that. And now internet access too, coming through smartphones, which is spreading very quickly in a number of developing countries. So all of those mean that these technologies add up to what Robert Gordon has called a big wave, a massive massive change in many sectors of the economy. Now, we've known for decades in economics that technology is what economic growth is all about, um, it, you know, in, in the quite abstract way that economists think about it. And also increasingly that the ideas part of that is what, is what matters and that you can get virtuous circles of growth um, accelerating, snowballing on each other. But that excitement that we had about the new economy is kind of evaporated in the crisis. And um, I was very struck by this quotation from Karl Marx that I came across. I mean, being a, a conventional economist, I'm not a, uh, an expert on Karl Marx, but I came across this in a newspaper. I think he was rubbish on class wall, but obviously very good about technology. He said, social relations are intimately bound up with productive forces. In acquiring new productive forces, men change their mode of production. And in changing their mode of production, the manner of making a living... They change all their social relations. The windmill gives you society with the feudal lord. The steam mill, society with the industrial capitalist. So the question we have is, what does the microprocessor give you? Is it really society with Bob Diamond, or is it something else? The way um, technologies change the economy in the first place and society, social relations, is... Um, a complicated and long and slow process. Um, one of the people who writes about this best is Paul David, the economic historian, who looked at electrification and in a well-known paper that was written, I think, in the early 90s. Um, talked about this taking 50 years to get from innovation to actually making any difference to anything at all, being able to measure its impact on the economy in any way at all. And the reason is that there are lots of kind of complementary investments that you need to make. So you invent electricity, marvellous. You decide uh, on the standards for direct current and alternating current. Somebody comes along and invents the dynamo. That's already taken a bit of time. Then you need to build power plants and the grid. And because factories um, used to be built around one steam engine and they were tall and thin so all the machines on the different floors would Revolve around the one steam engine. You need to build new factories to use dynamos on machines, and then you have the capacity to have an assembly line and get the efficiency gains that come from having an assembly line. And then you get suburbs built around the factories, and the combustion engine comes along and helps with that, of course. And then because you've got dynamos, you can um, sell housewives in the suburbs labour saving devices. So instead of uh, having to do all the washing by hand, they can have a washing machine, they can have a fridge, and then women can go out to work, and you get Marilyn French in the women's room and all all that social revolution. So, you know, you're talking about a centuries-long process, and who knows if that's the right story? You could probably tell completely different stories about the social effects of um, electrification. Um, But the the point is that these are very profound and large-scale changes and inherently unpredictable. And in fact, Paul David coined this fantastic phrase, technological presbyopia. And I'm middle-aged and I'm short-sighted and wear contact lenses, but I'm also, because I'm middle-aged, long-sighted at the same time, which seems hugely unfair. But to read now, I put glasses on top of my contact lenses. And it's the same idea about technology and trying to figure out what they're going to do. There's a huge excitement about new technology, and in the early days of the dot-com revolution, we all thought it was going to absolutely transform everything, and then it all went fuck and all the companies went bust, and there were just a few titans um, like Apple and Google left. And people get kind of, uh, there's a a backlash against it, and, and meanwhile people quietly change the way they, their social relations, the way they work, the way they run their lives using the new technologies. And 50 years later, we have something completely different, and at the moment inherently unpredictable as a result of these technologies. But I want to suggest two things happening as a result of this wave of technologies. Um, One is that the fact that they're information and communication technologies means that value added in the economy is increasingly generated by the processing and communication of information, which is an intangible activity, uh, which depends very much on communication, obviously, and um, has certain characteristics, like being very hard to measure and assess. So that's one consequence. And another consequence is um, what you might call the paradox of distance. There was a a fuss about the death of distance and how these new technologies meant that anything could be done anywhere. And of course, in a sense, that's true because now anything we wear or anything we use is made all over the place and you can do anything anywhere. But at the same time, face-to-face activities have also become more important because a lot of the new kinds of jobs and new kinds of activities and high-value-added bits of the economy depend on things that are very difficult to communicate if you've not had some kind of face-to-face contact, at least in the first instance. And I, the first work I know about looking at the complementarity of communications technologies and face-to-face contact was Ed Glazer and the co-author quite some time ago. But I've myself done quite a lot of surveys now in developing countries looking at the spread of mobile. And if you ask people, Has that reduced your contact with your friends and neighbours? They say, no, no, we see them much more. There's definite definite complementarity there. There's that kind of paradox of distance. Now, this business about value being intangible and face-to-face contact being important means, um, I would argue, that trust has gained much more salience than it used to have. Now, trust was always, always important in the economy, this is Checkpoint Charlie, where in the days of the Cold War, for those too young to remember these days, there were exchanges of spies between the Soviet bloc and the Western bloc. And uh, the minders and the spies would walk across to the midpoint of Checkpoint Charlie and hand swap their spies over. And then would walk back hoping not to get shot in the back as they went. In anything other than a, a barter economy, you need more trust than that manifests because you're separating the transaction in time and space. We don't want an economy where where all transactions are like Checkpoint Charlie. So any economy depends on a certain amount of trust. But we have an extraordinary reliance on trusting strangers in this intangible economy that we have at the moment. So let me give you some examples. An increasing share of what we spend our money on goes on what you would call experience goods. Um, Things like Going to lectures, going to the theatre, um, uh, getting somebody to come in and look after your granny because she's too old to look after herself anymore, you, you don't know what they're like until you've started actually consuming them and probably paid for them already. A lot of activities are really hard to monitor, or, or if you're doing them, to signal how well, how well you're doing them. One example would be computer software. So if I'm a programmer and I'm writing a new system for something and I've got a month to do it and I get to uh, two days before the end and I say to my boss, I've got this bug here, I don't quite know what the problem is, it's going to take me a few days to sort it out. He doesn't know whether it's true or not. Um, He might have some experience of how I've done things before but basically he's got to trust what I'm saying because the only way to monitor what I'm doing is for him to do it himself. Take a a very different example: working in a call centre, and we think of this as very routine, kind of modern factory, and they are. People are timed on how often they take calls, how quickly they answer calls. They have scripts to read out. Uh, If they take a break, that's timed as well. It's a highly monitored activity. Except, you can't tell how they're talking to your customers, and we've all had the experience of ringing up a call centre and getting somebody, you know, pretty stroppy at the end, who obviously doesn't care about our problem and the person managing the call centre has no idea who's doing a good job with the customers and who's doing a bad job with the customers, short of listening in to every call that takes place. So a lot of these jobs are inherently hard to monitor and depend absolutely on, on the trust that employers have in their employees. If you think also about the globalisation chains I was just talking about, um, companies now buy-in products, buying components for their stuff uh, which are probably very highly specified uh, with, with very limited tolerance for for errors um, from people they don't know in a place in China they've never heard of. That turns out to be city 10 million people but they hadn't heard of it before they looked on the internet and found that there's somebody offering to supply this particular component to them. So there's a lot of non-routine work and in the economy, most of the economy now, is not like the manufacturing economy of the 1960s, when the car or the television set rolled off the production line, and it was just down the road, and if one of them was going wrong all the time, you probably knew exactly which worker was responsible for, for the faults. It's absolutely hard to identify now. There's um, an essential bedrock of trust in almost all, GD, all of GDP, and correspondingly a much greater risk of opportunism and if your employer doesn't if your employee doesn't like you of them you know coasting along not doing a very good job seeing what they can get away with the scope for opportunism in the economy has become quite extensive so this is quite a fragile situation we have an economy that has got a long way on trust this is a high trust economy but there's a fragility in it And the stakes are high because this kind of intangible value evaporates overnight. And we've seen it in companies like Enron. We've seen it in banks. Banks might still have a lot of goodwill on their formal balance sheets, but they've got no value, I tell you. They've got no value. And in urban life in particular, we depend on strangers absolutely um, with the diversity of of origins, the cosmopolitanism that characterise all the big global cities like London, um, but also, of course, growing inequality and growing social tensions. So I want to talk a little bit about the inequality. And this is a slide I think I nicked from uh, Steve Machen, and it shows the share of GDP in the pink line going to the bottom half of the income distribution, and in the blue line, the share going to the top part of the income distribution. Um, much of the productivity gain in the economy over the past 20 years due to these technological changes has not gone to very many people. This is much more extreme in the United States than here but all of those benefits in the US have gone to the very richest cohorts of the population. Inequality here is the highest since the 1940s in the States the highest since the 1920s. I find it hard to believe that a society this unequal is sustainably a high-trust economy. I find it hard to believe that Barclays back-office staff are going to do their best when they read headlines about Bob Diamond's 21 million pounds. I must say that um, there's little evidence. There's little evidence that inequality does affect economic growth. So it's a contention rather than something that I could, that I could prove to you. But I do think inequality is linked closely to these technology-driven structural changes in the economy that I've been talking about, and is actually most extreme, of course, in urban locations. Inequality is um, an over-determined phenomenon. There are lots of causes of it, but one of the main drivers, and uh, this is this is empirically well well based, is the increase in demand for certain kinds of skills and the labour force, and no increase, no corresponding increase in the supply of those skills and the labour force, so a, mi- a mismatch between labour supply, and labour demand, which has led to a big increase in the wage premium going to certain kinds of uh, certain kinds of people. Now that, of course, has been um, amplified by lots of other other factors. There have been politics. There have been um, there's been the issue of deregulation in the labour market, de-unionisation, and then that whole dynamic of poverty being embedded in certain places because of poor housing, poor health, drugs and crime, and that that cluster of um, related phenomenon. phenomenon. But this inequality is definitely most extreme in urban locations where you get the the face-to-face gathering of people in the professional classes who are doing these very high-value kinds of activities, and they create the demand for people doing low-paid, low-skilled service activities to to serve them. Now, you can't definitively, as I said, link this in any empirical way to the lack of trust. But I find it really hard to see how this increasing separation into non-overlapping worlds could not have reduced trust in the economy. Um, Michael Sandel's new book says a lot of very silly things, but I think one of the very sensible things it says is about the loss of that sense of community and civic space if people are geographically occupying different parts of the city, different jobs, not overlapping in schools, not overlapping in their lives in any way at all. And I have, um, to illustrate this, nicked a couple of other slides from um, uh, these are Joseph Ramtree Foundation studies of London's uh, uh, poverty rates in different parts of the city. 1970 80 90 and, and 2000 and the colouring shows both the increasing rate of poverty over that time but also that that uh, centripetal effect of it clustering in, in those central boroughs in the city the red coloured boroughs in the city and then if I skip ahead to two, uh this is from Danny Darling's website essentially showing in a different visualization the same thing that if you take the actual geography of London constituencies and uh, use the income data to to change the map, you see that rich people and poor people are living in different parts of the city. Um, Now, there are these reinforcing mechanisms. I just talked about the reinforcing mechanisms of poverty. There are reinforcing mechanisms at the wealth end of the scale as well. And high incomes and wealth, I think, have very clearly been parlayed into really effective lobbying on the part of financial oligopolies and monopolies. And the structure of financial regulation that we have and competition that we have favours the incumbents and has enabled them to become even richer at the expense of their customers and their employees and their shareholders. And I think... um, In the timidity of the Vickers report and its implementation we can see how effective that lobbying is still and despite the fact that the Bank of England has been subsidizing to the tune of billions of pounds the funding of the banks and despite the fact that they've been putting aside billions billions of pounds to compensate people for mis-selling financial products they're paying themselves bonuses and I think it's a very good example of how inequality starts to distort um, political and social choices Andy Haldane, who's a a radical at Bank of England, says bankers have bankrupted half a million households in this country, 100,000 businesses, and a growing number of sovereign states. So that's quite a lot of power. But the point is that um, people are using the system, people are using the system to get what they can out of it. And I talked about the scope for opportunism if you're a regular call centre worker or Uh, A computer programmer or, or anything else, any kind of ordinary job, but there's also been not only scope, but the actuality of opportunism at the top of the income scale as well. And so that inequality is corroding the kinds of values on which the market economy was based 20 or 30 years ago. Now I talked right at the start about the jolly street party that we had and the concert and how fantastic all of that was, Um, And that was obviously a very special occasion. But we have seen recently in London as well the opportunism. And I live in Ealing, which is where my street party was, a mile down the road. This is the riot last summer. And we had uh, a lot of damage. There are still burnt out buildings. And that behaviour was really shockingly close to the surface. So in this same place, this same place where people... Um, get together for a nice uh, celebration of Diamond Jubilee. There were other people, or who knows, perhaps even some of the same people, went down the road and rioted a few months earlier. That opportunism is quite close to the surface, and the social makeup of the writers was quite diverse, actually. The um, postcodes of where they lived, if you looked at court cases, um, was not all clustered in the problem estates roundabout. It was, it was quite widespread. They had come from quite quite long distances. Some of them had come seven or five miles to come and write and down the road from me. And they were united by a lack of any shared sense of responsibility for the community, the urban space, the, the local economy. So although we have got a long way on having a high level of trust and we depend very much on it, I think there's, there's worrying evidence of fragility in it. And it's not just in the fact that there was a riot for all kinds of complicated reasons, it's in the polling evidence as well. So I don't know how well you can see this from further back, but this is, uh, I've plucked out some of the numbers from the regular Ipsos Mori polling, which asks people, which of these professions do you trust? And I've shown a few years, they have uh, annual data on this, and they have about 20 different professions. So I've given you the highest trust ones, the doctors, the teachers at the top, and doctors have stayed the most trusted, Uh, You can see that's dropped in the last couple of years from 92% to 88% saying that they trust their doctors. So that's still really high, but it's a statistically highly significant drop in the last couple of years. Teachers, similar story. Clergy, well, clergy, I'd be quite worried if I were a clergyman these days, because that's gone down from a very high 80 in 1999 to 68 now, and a fifth of people would not trust a clergyman. You You know, you might not believe in things, but that's that's pretty worrying. And then you go down. Civil servants have been kind of stable. Uh, business, actually, has been kind of stable, although it's always been low in this league table. Politicians have always been low, but trust in politicians has really collapsed to 13 14% in the last couple of years. If you look at other um, polling evidence on institutions of governance, there are questions like um, how much do you... Um, how much do you trust the system of government, government? How much do you trust the market economy? People have a, a really quite alarming lack of trust in the whole institutional fabric of the society. They still trust doctors a lot. Actually, they still trust the BBC a lot, I'm pleased to say, but I haven't put that on the chart. Uh, the NHS is up there. So there are still some things, but in things like... Uh, trusting the civil service, trusting politicians, trusting the system of government, trusting political parties, very little at all. And I think, that's, I think that's really alarming. Now, as I was saying right at the beginning, we've had this tendency to paint government and markets as completely separate domains, and one does what the other can't. Um, I think it's much more important to think about a larger domain of collective ways of responding to the sort of um, uh, economic and social tensions that the structural change in the economy is is driving. And this collapse in trust, to me, points to a mismatch between the uh, economic relations and social relations driven by the technology, but also demography actually, which I haven't talked about tonight, and, and the lack of change in the collective institutions that we have at the moment. And although we tend to think about what kind of policies should the government have? I think it's probably more important to think about institutional change and institutional responses, because there are lots of social and economic institutions that are not either government or market, and that's things like unions and companies, but also local exchange schemes, uh, free cycle, um, companies themselves. If you think back to the Victorian era, which was a similar period of There having been massive technical change, massive structural economic change, and enormous social problems consequent on that, uh, which we're familiar with from reading Dickens and and Mrs Gaskell and what have you. And that gave rise to a period of of huge institutional innovation, and that period gave gave us unions, it gave us mutual societies, it gave us public schools, it gave us libraries, it gave us working men's associations, the workers' education associations philanthropic donations to museums and galleries then Royal Geographic Society, all of these institutions date from that period of um, structurally determined social turmoil. And I think that's what we need to be looking at now. So what are the economic functions of unions? Are there functions of unions that are information-related? What, um, what does job search look like in the Facebook era? What could unions do or what could anybody do that would replicate for working people a function that unions used to do in an old-fashioned way. One thing that unions used to do was um, determine a fair wage rate, a going rate for the job. And they did that by collecting information from their members in different companies around the country and um, collating that information and, and giving it back to members. You can do that using new technologies in different ways. You could do that now without needing there to be a government policy about it. This example up on the screen is Fix My Street. Um, It's from my society. It's a not-for-profit. This is also in my area. So you can see how rough it is post-riot. There's some spilled paint on the road and an invisible zebra crossing. So it's obviously calmed down post-riot. What about the institutions of local government in our cities? Does the local council have to do everything? Could we... I mean, we don't want a street party every week. Are there things that... Other people can do, that the technology can be used for, what are the institutional responses to the kind of um, social and economic dislocations that we've been seeing. Now I don't know the answers but that's the area that I think we need to think about. Uh, last week I was here to listen to Neil Ferguson's first uh, BBC Week lecture which is going to be broadcast next week and he was talking about actually exactly, although he didn't use the word, exactly this issue of sustainability and being a historian He quoted Edmund Burke, and I looked up the quotation. It's, um, society is indeed a contract. It's a partnership in all science, a partnership in all art, a partnership in every virtue and in all perfection. As the ends of such a partnership cannot be achieved for many generations, it becomes a partnership not only between those who are living, but between those who are living, those who are dead, and those that are to be born. And I agree with... Neil Ferguson, that that partnership between the generations has been broken, that parts of the legacy, including the legacy of trust that we inherited from an earlier structure, have been destroyed and and that the future generation is clearly going to be worse off and we've already failed them. And at the time of uh, the financial crisis when Lehman Brothers collapsed, I looked at the London Interbank offer rate in the newspapers and thought the banks don't trust each other with their money overnight. So that means my card might not work in the supermarket tomorrow, so I'm going to go and stock up in the supermarket and I'm going to get as much cash out of the cash machine as I can. And luckily luckily for us, that was only a week or so when, as it turns out, the cash machines nearly did stop working. Um, But in Greece now, people have exactly that same prospect again about how do they go and buy food for their family tomorrow. Having said that, I think I'm optimistic because (coughs) I think there is an opportunity for the kind of social and institutional innovation that I was just talking about, and, and signs of it happening, and lots of start-ups. There is a hollowing out that's characteristic of these new technologies. I talked about it earlier in, um, uh, in the geographic sense, that uh, there are face-to-face activities and then there's globalisation. It's been true in the labour market and the skill level of jobs, that there are high-skill jobs and low-skill jobs, so it's the ones in the middle that have gone. It's been true in the things that you buy. People buy stuff from Primark that's very cheap, or they buy designer stuff that's Louis Vuitton and in the magazines, and Marks & Spencer's has really been struggling. So there's a kind of hollowing-out pattern there. And I wonder if that's also going to be true about institutions and governance. Uh, Danny Roderick has written about this, about having global challenges in an era of not only national government, but actually increasingly nationalistic government, and that being a problem. These new technology networks that I've been talking about right here at the end, might be, um, might be local, because I think new technologies work well when they are um, matched up with local organization. If you look at um, the Arab Spring phenomenon of people using Twitter and Facebook, actually, that's using Twitter and Facebook combined with good old-fashioned political organization on the ground, and I think they go, they go hand in hand. And I've got some research that's looked at that. Having said that, I think I'm optimistic. Um, just to end with another snapshot, this is the post-riot scene down the road from my house and some of the people who obviously came out and had street parties also took uh, peace cakes to help people who were, who were doing the cleaning, the cleaning up as well. Uh, I think I've raised more questions than answers and this is um, probably the kind of talk that a, a conventional economist would not approve of because I've ranged into social questions and political questions as well. I'd like to stop there and see if anybody has any has any comments or questions, and um, just end with a, a brief advert for the book, which I'm sure is on, available on sale outside afterwards. Thank you.
0: Uh, well, uh, thank you uh, very much for an interesting talk. As I like to think of myself occasionally as a conventional economist, and I didn't disapprove too much. Uh, We've got uh, plenty of time for questions. Uh, I'm sure there are some out there. There are mics. Uh, if you feel like it, you could uh, tell us who you are and, and where you come from uh, before asking your question. But I don't necessarily think that's compulsory. Uh, so questions. Gentlemen in the blue. Uh, Chris Tennant, uh, research student here at the LSE. Do you think this is a particularly British phenomenon, and whether or not your diagnosis of uh, the sort of intolerability of inequality would be so true in the US, or do you think they have a greater tolerance for inequality and therefore a less likely kind of breakdown of trust?
2: Well, I
1: don't. I don't. I used to live in the United States, but that was a long time ago, so I don't want to set myself a, an expert on it. But I think the dual phenomenon of the Tea Party and the Occupy movements are actually a, a populist reaction to exactly the same phenomena. So, although to um, our way of thinking, it's a very, it's a very um, unjoined up political reaction to say, if you're in the Tea Party, uh, the government is terrible, let's, let's let the rich guys run us even more than they do already. And that seems illogical. Actually, I think the phenomenon does demonstrate a kind of lack of acceptance and um, the figures are very stark in the United States, there has literally been none of the gain in GDP going to the bottom what is it, 50%, 60% of the income distribution, which is quite quite extraordinary given that they have had very large productivity gains
0: okay, two here lady here in the
1: Hi, um, thanks for the talk. Rosie Helson, currently an intern at Corporate Citizenship. Um, I'm interested what you think is the role of business here in forming more cohesive societies that uh, give more of a positive group mentality in the Jubilee celebration slides rather than riots, as businesses
2: obviously have a large socioeconomic impact, both directly in providing jobs and salaries, indirectly in... Uh, those employees spending money in the
1: local communities and that kind of thing, so um, what do you think their sort of contribution could be i've spent a lot of time talking to people who who work in and run big businesses and they 're not bad people they are not um, in the business of, of of screwing their society and um, the demonization of big business I think is a mistake um, having said that, I think there are there are There are structures that mean that they're operating in ways that don't serve the economy and society very well. One of those is the structure of shareholding that John Kay has been looking at in his review. And the um, perverse consequence of quarterly reporting, which everybody thought was a great thing because it was more transparency, has actually been to increase the short-termism and the the need to, to drive up share prices quarter to quarter. Um, Getting institutional investors to actually pay any attention to the businesses that they invest their money in and over a long-term horizon is, is a challenge there as well. There's a set of structural problems about investment and relationships with shareholders. There's a set of structural problems about remuneration. Boards in the UK and the US, but also continental Europe, are all drawn from the same kind of cohort of people. It's not a very diverse group. In the absolutely classic senses of uh, social or ethnic backgrounds or or geographic backgrounds and um, they have uh, similar education, similar ways of thinking, they're in the same boat and they're not going to rock that boat so even if they don't actually directly sit on each other's boards in this country they're in that same boat and I think there needs to be much greater diversity in boardrooms um, to bring in, I would bring in worker perspectives which is anathema to the Anglo-Saxon way of thinking about how you run a board, but I think it's very important. And um, there's a set of problems about competition as well. And we have in the UK anyway some quite concentrated industries. The economies of scale have become large and Tesco doesn't need to do anything to be able to keep out other companies because it's such a big buyer, they can get better prices and it's a kind of perfectly organic and natural phenomenon. But we do have uh, five supermarkets that have taken all the, uh, the land sites and are the only buyers of, of, of produce in this country. Um, a lot of the new, in- new technology industries make that even worse because there are network economies as well, and the economies of scale in software or in communications are very large indeed. And so I think we have a competition problem. And a huge part of the problem in banking is that new entrants can't get in? We have had no new entry in banking in this country for 100 years, except when one bank, big bank buys another big bank or some of its branches. Actually, the technology offers some prospect of that changing. There are startups using the technology to do peer to peer lending, small business lending, running up against regulatory barriers that stop them getting big. And uh, so we need to look really seriously at how we actually have effective competition in banking, but also in in accountancy, in pharmaceuticals, where if you have a small ph- full biotech company, all you can do is sell it to a big pharmaceuticals company. You can't do anything else that you can't do yourself because of the various barriers. So, so competition. So, lots of big, big structural problems. Even when businesses have best intentions in the world, which I think they do actually. Yes, uh,
0: John Edwards. Uh South Place Ethical Society. Um, So far, you've uh, brought in some very interesting comments on how the economy works and what what is going wrong, but it seems to be purely from a business-as-usual point of view. And you don't seem to have said anything whatsoever about the uh, physical limitations to growth, the growing environmental problem, shortage of resources potential collapse of agricultural production and other sort of issues waiting in the wing. I I was coming expecting and talk about sort of longer term sustainability, but you seem to be um, sort of propping up business as usual, as it were. No,
1: it's a fair point. I do have a whole chapter about it. Economists and environmentalists tend to think in very different ways about um, the sustainability of resources, because to an economist, um, if there is unsustainable resource use, that will get reflected in price increases, and the price increase is a correcting mechanism, which, apart from anything else, stimulates innovation, and that takes people away from using that particular resource into using a different resource. So there's a kind of different uh, approach to it in the first place. The thing I think is really important, is to have measurements of how we're using resources, which we don't do. And I think we have obviously been overusing some resources, and that hasn't been reflected in either the prices we pay for them or in our understanding of their depletion. So one of my big arguments in the book is about having measurements of assets, including natural assets. We focus a lot on GDP, which I think is a really important measure you don't have GDP growth, you get increasing unemployment, and that makes people very unhappy indeed, and governments don't get re-elected. So you have to have growth. But I think we also need to understand if we're getting that growth at the expense of eating capital including natural resources. We've got some of the building blocks for having um, a measurement of the country's assets. Everything from the financial assets and the roads and bridges to the human capital to all the natural resources. But we That's not very good. We need much, much better measurement to that. The other thing is, um, if you want people to stop using energy or stop using any resource, overusing any resource, the price is going to have to go up to stop them doing it. And that's a really hard, that's a really hard political thing to do. And I don't think any government so far has actually taken on board how much more people will have to pay to turn on their lights at home and turn on their computers if we're going to... Reduce
0: our use of energy. And so there's a lot riding on low carbon technologies and energy use. uh, Let me me ask that to tie those two bits together. uh, How how much of a problem do you think uh, the the lack of trust in politicians is in moving towards pricing? You know, I mean, so as an economist, you think well carbon pricing and these kind of things. But in a world where uh, people don't trust politicians, and politicians are the people that we need to introduce yeah. those kind of pricing methods, I mean, how on earth do we get round that, that problem if there's been such a fundamental failure of trust uh, in politicians that is it's just getting worse? Do you know, I really don't
1: know. You know I'm, I'm entirely in sympathy with the question. I don't, I don't know the answer to that. Maybe you need to get doctors to
2: talk about it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah.
0: Fine. Uh, question here in the. Do you, do you want to shout it? We might, we might hear you. There's one here in the orange.
2: Hi. Um, I'm actually one of the <clears throat> untrusted civil servants, um, and I actually work... No, you're,
1: you're halfway down the new table.
2: <laughs> <laughs> um, and I actually work on agricultural and water policy in the UK, and I'm just about to go to the European Commission to work on the same thing. And uh, as long as it doesn't get reported, I would say you're absolutely right not to trust uh, politicians on making the right decisions on pricing because they've uh, failed to uh, include water pricing in the recent water white paper. And at the moment, we're renegotiating cap Uh, the common agricultural policy and are not uh, including the. the ec- environmental externalities and the price of food again. So it absolutely is a problem of um, political inaction on this. And um, yeah, I think that that's where we are at, at the moment. So definitely something has to change on that. But my question, that was just a comment. Um, my question was, it, it, I haven't read anything of your book, but it sounds a little bit like um, what David Cameron was trying, uh, could possibly have been suggesting under the big society, um, but hasn't really articulated uh, very well. And I'm wondering if you've been asked that before, or if you do see any links with that policy.
1: It's not my mission in life to articulate the big society for him, I have to say. <laughs>
2: um,
1: do you know, I, th- I think this is not a... I think politicians across the spectrum are kind of groping for a language to talk about. Um, I mean, they know they know what uh, they know what people think about them. And for the m- mainstream MPs who are doing a really good job that's basically social work in their constituency, um, and they're very dedicated public servants. They are people who could earn much more if they did other things, but they care about what they do. So I'm not desperately cynical about politicians but there is something in the structure of um, the way we organise party politics and report about party politics and uh, respond to them that makes it very hard for these difficult decisions to get taken and they're across the spectrum we've talked about the environmental ones but it's it's pensions as well it's um, not subsidising things for old people so much because of the demographic problem that we're going to be facing. You know, there's a, a lot of really difficult long-term decisions for politicians to take. And uh, give them some ammunition, give them better measurements so they can talk about it in a different way. And and don't put the whole burden on politicians to sort things out. You know, We need to think about some things, just, just doing some things for ourselves. And I don't know if that's a big society or not.
0: Right, last chance. Whoa. We're moving towards a conclusion. So from here, yep, here. So well,
1: I'm going to do them just here, I'm a banker. <laughs> <laughs> I'm not in favour of moving everything to a market, um, but where you can have markets, they can be really powerful mechanisms of changing behaviour. I would like to change people's behaviour and their energy use quite dramatically, and I think putting the price up a lot is a really effective way to do that. But that doesn't mean, I believe, in markets markets and everything. And actually, um, in in creating a civic space, it's very important Not to have markets everywhere. I certainly believe that in broadcasting, I wouldn't do the job that I'm doing, Um, and there are other areas as well. In this country, we believe strongly that um, in the in the healthcare system, there are elements of that where you might go for a bit of market efficiency, but really important elements that are not in the market.
0: Right. Really, last last chance. Anyone? Yeah.
1: So if the push for institutional change can't come for the gu- from the government, entrepreneurial but that, that has different dimensions and some of it will be business actually. I mean some of the uh, startups doing new kinds of financing are very much in it, in it for profit um, but but some of it will be entrepreneurship in other, other domains, uh, social domains or, or philanthropic domains and that's exactly the pattern of, of the Victorian era which is an incredibly entrepreneurial era and there is a task of government in that which is not doing it or saying what it ought to be but, but removing some of the barriers to, to that
0: becoming more effective and, and getting to larger scale okay uh, well, perfect timing an hour uh, on a Thursday night, uh, it just uh, remains for me to uh, ask you to thank uh, Diane again for her time